We are in a series called Devoted. It's the gospel and good works and how these things go together through the book of Titus. And so if you have a Bible, let's go to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 is where we're going to be at. And I want to let you know that um, I don't, maybe you've noticed this before or I don't know. But when I preach, I tend to preach kind of long. <laughs> or you have noticed. Okay. Um, so I just want to let you know kind of like what's going on with that. Um, for about 12 years of my life, I was tasked with preaching week in and week out to young adults, college students. And um, when I did that, I spoke for 50 to 55 minutes every single week. And as some of our college students are here keeping me accountable, a lot of times it was like an hour. And so for 12 years, about 50 weeks a year, I did the same thing every single week. So just to let you know, I've been only doing this thing with Larry for about a year. And uh, so 12 years, one year, as you can tell, habits die hard. So hang tight. I'm working on it. Um, so, so pray for me. Pray with me uh, that, that I'll figure out how to feel comfortable with 35 minutes when I, for 12 years, have felt so good with 50. Does that make sense? So hang tight with me, okay? Um, so that's just kind of a disclaimer. I see the clock, I have a timer, it's right here, it's counting, so let's pray. God, not only do I personally need you to keep me on time, but I need you to help me in my mind and with my words to say things which will, which will be profitable for your people. And so God, would you give me that? God, would you give me clarity of thought and give me the words that I need to say? And above all these things, Lord, give me the kind of heart from which I can say them. And so I pray even now, God, your grace would pour out on me and grant me the Holy Spirit in such abundance that everyone here will sense that we've heard from you. So God, we've gathered as your children to hear from you and to be ministered by you. And so, God, use this time in whichever way you see fit. Teach us the things we ought to learn. Confront us about the things we ought to be confronted about. Grant us grace and mercy about those things that you know ail us. And above all these things, Lord, would you give us a crystal clear picture of who you are so that by knowing who you are, we may be satisfied with all that we see. So God, grant us these things, we pray, and we'll give you the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, what we're going to do is we're going to see this, that God regenerates us through the cleansing of the Holy Spirit according to his love and mercy for us in Christ. Big theological words that I would love to spend some time unpacking, but instead we're going to see from here, and I appoint your attention to the little booklet we have for our small groups and individuals to study alongside of us. Go there because there's so much in there that is incredibly helpful. But the big concept is this, that God regenerates us. And I'll explain what regenerate means in a little bit. But he regenerates us through the process in which he cleanses us by the Holy Spirit. And he does this because he's motivated by his love and his mercy for us. And all of that culminates in the person of Christ. Christ is the center from which all of God's love, mercy, grace comes and flows to us. And so we're going to see how the Holy Spirit regenerates us, renews us, 
And uh, it's just a beautiful Trinitarian picture about how God saves sinners like you and I. So we're going to be Titus chapter 3. And uh, at the risk of being a broken record, let's remind ourselves about what we've studied through 1 Timothy, what we're studying in Titus, that the concepts that we learn theologically are called sound doctrine. Another way to say it is the Greek word is literally healthy. Healthy doctrine is to be something that we pursue. But we're not to pursue healthy doctrine, right teaching, theology as an end in and of itself. It's to be pursued in conjunction with how we behave, which is called good works. And so the whole Christian life of discipleship is about bringing the life of what we believe and the life of how we live together into one holistic life. You cannot pursue one at the expense of the other. It has to be together. And the gospel reminds us that it's not only the power to save us, but it's also the power that uh, enables us to be the kind of people that we ought to be. Grace-enabled, grace-empowered obedience is provided us in the gospel. And so we need to know these things together. Tim Keller, who's a pastor, a former pastor in New York City of uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church, he writes this in a book called Center Church about the gospel and its relationship to good works. He says this, the gospel is not about something we do, but it's about something that has been done for us. And yet the gospel results in a whole new way of life. The grace and the good deeds that result must be both distinguished and connected. The gospel, its results, its implications, they must be carefully related to each other, neither confused nor separated. And I loved how he articulates that because you and I need to make sure that we are distinguishing what the gospel is from what the gospel does. The difference is a cause and an effect. The gospel is what it is. It's the work of God in the person of Christ Jesus set in human history where he lived the obedient life that we should have, took upon himself the consequences for sin which we rightly deserved, but he bore them in our place. He was dead and buried in the tomb, and three days later he popped up from the grave, and it proved to us that his payment was sufficient. The life he promised us is now offered to us because of his resurrection. That is the gospel. Now what the gospel does is its effect. It causes us to love other people. It causes us to worship God. It causes us to want God. But we must never confuse the effects of the gospel with what the gospel is. Tim Keller goes on and explains this importance by writing this. The gospel then is preeminently a report about the work of Christ on our behalf. And that's why and how the gospel is salvation by grace. The gospel is news because it is about a salvation accomplished for us. It is news that creates a life of love. But the life of love is not itself the gospel. And you can hear this every once in a while in our culture, especially in the Christian subculture, that the gospel is that we should love our neighbor. No, that is not what the gospel is. That is the gospel's effect. And if you want to pursue the effect of something without the cause of that effect, then you are asking for something that has no power. 
You want something which can't be given to you. We have to be centered and focused on the gospel so that the effects of it will flow in and out of us in love towards God and our neighbor. That's why Paul writes in chapter 3, verse 8, that these things are to be insisted upon. Insisted upon. Churches need to insist on the gospel and its effects. Or else it is powerless. So as disciples of Jesus, we need to remember that our obedience and our desire for goods, good works is, like we talked about last week, a response to the grace of God as it's explained to us and for us in the gospel. All of our good works is a response to God's grace. So I know that's like, you know, just keep saying it over and over, but we forget. And so we have to remember this stuff. Second Peter chapter 1, he says, remember four times. Remember, 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 remember. Why? Because we always forget. Can't even find my car keys half the time. So what are some good works? First one and two. Remind them, Paul writes, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one and to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. In other words, Paul says, here are some examples of the gospel's effects. Do these things. Be these things. Now, the only way to do and be these things is to be enabled and empowered to do them from the gospel. Now, what are some of these things? Well, let's look. We won't elaborate much on this, but we'll see some of these things are key for what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Firstly is this, that disciples, Christians, are to be submissive to rulers and authorities. We have to remember that Christians are not anarchists. They're not rebels in the, in, in the kind of way that we, we want to overthrow the government and, you know, run around with our guns and, and all that kind of stuff. That's not what Christians do. Christians submit to the government. However, there's also a limitation to how far we will submit or to what extent we will submit. If you remember, the apostles were preaching the gospel, and then the government at the time told them they needed to knock it off. And so they gave them an injunction that you needed to stop preaching the gospel or else. And we see that the apostle Peter and John and the others, hearing this injunction, they refuse to obey it. And they actually say this in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. And so we should submit to our governing authorities, but at the same time, whenever the governing authorities are trying to usurp God's authority, then we go, no, 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 I, I'm, I'm with God on this one. You see, because Jesus is king, not Caesar. And whenever King Caesar tries to uh, import something which is contradictory to what King Jesus says, King Jesus wins that battle every time. And therefore, we as Christians side ourselves with King Jesus. So if the government ever tells us you need to cease and desist preaching the gospel, guess what we're about to do? Preach the gospel. Because Jesus is my king, not Caesar. But if you notice what the apostles did, they did not, they did not uh, disobey the government by actively creating a mob and storming the courthouse. Instead, they passively resisted 
by simply going about their business preaching the gospel. And whatever consequences came, they embraced them. So at some point, if it's going to be illegal to preach the gospel, then it'll be illegal and somebody will go to jail. And that's kind of the idea of what it looks like to be a Christian. You just, you obey, but there's a limit. Then he goes on to write, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. This is the idea of we have to be ready to serve. In the NIV, it says eager for every good work. And the idea is, brothers and sisters, we need to be people who are intentionally looking for opportunities to love our neighbors. Not opportunities to ignore them. So here's how Paul writes it in Galatians 6.10. He says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Not just do good to people who think like you and vote like you and look like you. But do good to everyone. And then it says, and especially to those who are the household of faith. May it never be, brothers and sisters, that we as fellow Christians treat one another poorly. May it never be. But as we have opportunity, let us do good to each other. And then how we speak. Speak evil of no one, verse 2. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy towards all people. What Paul's saying is, look, as Christians, you should never, ever allow evil speech to come out your mouth. Not only in what you say, but how you say it. And so, brothers and sisters, as Christians, we should never let things like slander and gossip and flattery come flying out of our mouths. That is not how we are to speak. And especially with people who disagree with us. It says don't quarrel, but it doesn't mean don't have a conversation with somebody who disagrees with you. It just means the kind of stuff that you see on social media today about everyone outraged about everything. We as Christians need to have a completely distinct approach in how we engage with people who we disagree with. It's to be one in which the speech in which we have, whether it's typed or said, it needs to be free of evil. You interact on social media like that? We should be. There needs to be a gentleness about the behavior in which we behave. Brothers and sisters, you have no idea how fragile somebody may be. You have no idea what their background is. You have no idea what they've been through. And the easiest way to diffuse hostility is not to be the first to fire. It's to make sure that we're gentle. We want to make sure we're gentle. God considers human beings precious because they bear his image. We too should treat every person as though they are precious. Not just because we consider them precious, but because God considers them precious. So we need to be gentle. Especially in the way we speak. That's why Paul writes in Colossians 4, 5, and 6, he says, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, those who don't believe like you. Making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. If there's a question, answer it. But how you answer it ought to be gracious. Not only that, but there's a gentleness that we need with those who disagree. As 1 Peter 3.15 says, people who disagree with us, they're going to ask questions. But how you respond and what you respond with makes all the difference. He writes this, Peter writes, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. That's the first step. Make sure that you are truly obedient to Christ. 
always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. You see that last part? Yeah, do it with gentleness and respect. So much of what we're seeing in our culture today is so disrespectful and so the opposite of being gentle. Christians, come on. Let's know our identity and live like it. Because Romans 14, 17 says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. I mean, arguing about what is permissible and what isn't, but it's of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So then, because of this truth, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. That is what we are to pursue. Gentle, peace, joy, mutual upbuilding. Not using our words to tear down. And then he says, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. The word courtesy means you better mind your manners. We don't teach manners anymore. Or at least in the world we don't. But one of the things as a baseball coach that I always did with our kids is at the end of practice, you look at your coach in the eyeballs. You stick out your hand and you shake their hand and you look at that coach and say, thank you, coach. Now, that may not be much. But I've had so many people come to me and tell me things like, man, these boys are well-behaved. It's like, no, they just were respectful. They have manners. And adults talking to you, you better talk back. Not like talk back, but respond. <laughs> you see how that works? Why should we do this? Verse 3 starts with the word for. We talked about last week. When, when you see that word for there, it's telling you the rationale, the reason why everything else was just said. So he says, you need to be this and do this because. Here's the reason why is because we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. You know why we should treat people with gentleness and respect? It's because we were once the kind of people who were wicked and despicable. You see, what Paul's going to do here is he's going he's to highlight two different kinds of people. He's going to highlight a group of people called regenerate. And he, and he says this that in verse 5, that the Holy Spirit washes us with regeneration. Now remember this in, in verse three, uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, remind them. The them is the church, Christians. What he says in chapter 1, verse 1, the elect. And what he says is you need to remind them they need to act this way. Why? Why should people act that way? One of the reasons is because you once were despicable. You once were the second category of people, which is called unregenerate. So you have one category, which is regenerate, and the other category, which is unregenerate. And that's a theme throughout Scripture, that there is the seed of the woman, which is the godly line, and then you have the seed of the serpent, the children of the devil, and the children of God. There's no third category. You're either on God's family or you're not. And so 
what Paul is saying is, look, you need to understand that you have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And knowing that impacts how you behave towards those who are unregenerate. Do you guys see that? And that's why he writes that we should be perfectly courteous to all people. Because we too were once, as he says here, once these things, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. We need to be courteous, gentle, patient. Because we once were all of the opposite of those things. In Ephesians 2, he picks it up and he says it like this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Notice that phrase, you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you see what he's saying here? We as regenerate people ought to behave and treat unregenerate people a particular kind of way because we know what it's like to be them. We were once in their shoes. Isn't that one of the most helpful, practical things you can think of? When I was ministering to college students and young adults, they would irritate me to no end. And here's one reason why. We would show up. We're going to meet at the parking lot at 9 o'clock. We're leaving at 9.30. We're heading up to our trip. All right. I get a phone call at 10.30. Phil, where are you guys? On the road, bro. Oh, really? You guys left already? Yes. We said meet at 9. We left at 9.30. It's 10.30. What are you doing? I just woke up. <laughs> can I still come? Yeah, you can still come. Do I got to drive? When you're in that situation, how do you respond? Well, here's what I do. I, I, I think back and I'm like, what is wrong with these people? And then I, I think back to when I was in college and I went, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, when I was playing college baseball and I, and I was interning at a church and dating my future wife and when I was taking 21 units a semester, I kind of forgot stuff too. I need to probably be more patient with them. Do you see how that works? I will treat you today how I know you ought to be treated because I remember who I was back then. Who I was back then is, res is a resemblance of who you are now. And so therefore I'll treat you differently. You guys see that? Because we were people who constantly rejected God. We once were people who hated God. We once ignored God. And then in verse 4 it says, but the strongest word in the Greek language to contrast two opposites is translated right here, but. But, the total opposite. When the, love, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Now that verb, he saved us, is the main verb of the whole sentence from verses 4 through 7. One sentence, verse 4 through 7. The main verb is he saved us. Which means everything else in verses 4 through 7 is trying to explain what it means for God to save us. And if you're keeping track, we said last week that the grace of God has appeared. And now all of a sudden it says the goodness and the loving kindness of God has appeared. Last week we said the grace of God is Jesus. And now we see the goodness and loving kindness of God is Jesus. Does God love you? 
Look at Jesus. Is God gracious toward you? Look at Jesus. Is God good toward you? Look at Jesus. He's the center of all this. He's the one that makes sense of it all. And then we see God's motivation. God saved us, but why? He says, Paul writes, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. It was God loving us. God being good to us is why God saved us. Not because, if you notice, because we were good and we were lovely. Do you see the difference? And brothers and sisters, here's the one thing that I get so uh, nervous about is when we flip the gospel upside down and we go, no, no, God saved me because I was a diamond in the rough. I was pretty good. He made me gooder. I was kind of lovely. He makes me really lovely. When you talk like that, then pretty soon the actual love of God and the actual goodness of God and the actual grace of God is diminished because he didn't have to save a wretch like me. He rescued a guy who was basically good. Therefore, because I didn't need to be saved from much, he didn't need to love me that much. Brothers and sisters, if you want to scale the heights of God's love for you, then you must at the same time plunge the depths of your own heart. And when you do that, you need to be honest about what you find there. You are more wicked than you realize. And until you come to that realization, oh my goodness, I'm a wretch, I'm wicked, you will never be able to see how beautiful God's love is for you. So don't go give me this nonsense about, I'm basically good. No, you're basically jacked up. <laughs> Ask your friends and family. But I realized that kind of talk, when I talk like this, people get offended. And that's the number one thing in our culture you can't do. You cannot offend somebody. Why are we so offended and unsettled by this truth? It's because we live in a culture of self-esteem, self-image, and self-promotion. We spend all day long trying to figure out how to project for other people the greatness of who we are. And so if somebody says, you're not that great, <laughs> I spend my whole life trying to prove to people I'm great. And now you're telling me I'm not? You see, that's the beauty of the gospel. Because if you're being honest, let's be honest. Let's be honest. Most of what we do on social media and what we do when we talk to our friends and family is we put our best foot forward. We do not admit that we're not as good of parents as we like to say we are. We are not as good of people as we say we are. You get that? The beauty of the gospel is this. When you try to pretend all your life long, you get worn out. You get tired. It's hard to play make-believe all day long. The beauty of the gospel is this. God has removed the mask. We have been outed. The game is over. The charades can stop. Because 
Jesus came to save you, not when you were good and at your best, but God came to save you when you were in the midst of your sin and rebellion. God came so that whatever Jesus accomplished was all that was necessary to make you acceptable before God. So whatever it is you do in your life, it does not qualify you to be accepted by God, but instead, because you have been accepted by God according to the works of Christ, you can freely be who you are. Now, if that doesn't make sense to you, let me say real plainly. You know how you're scared to death of somebody finding out what you're really like? God knows what you're really like. He has given you worth and value, and he has told you that you are mine. So the fear that we have of, man, I don't want people to know that I'm weak, God simply reminds us, no, 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 no. I came to rescue from that slavery. Confess your weakness because when you confess your weakness, even before your friends, you will reveal that I am your strength. You see how that works? So brothers and sisters, get off the mask. Quit playing the charades. Quit pretending. Quit self-promoting. Instead, come out from behind the curtain and expose yourself to God and simply tell him, I know what you said about me is true. I'm more wicked than I realize, and yet, God, you love me than I ever dared or thought possible. That's the gospel. And brothers and sisters, that's freeing. God will accept you not because of how good you are, but he accepts you because of how good Jesus is for you. So when you come before God, God says, why should I let you in my presence? You better not come with, look at all I did, God. You simply come empty-handed and say, I don't stand on my own merits. I stand on the merits of your son, Jesus. And since he was sinless and perfect, I'm sinless and perfect. No righteousness of my own, but the righteousness that he won for me at the cross and through his resurrection. Mm. That's good. So we don't need to edit ourselves anymore. Come out from this slavery. Come out from this hiding. Come to the light so that you may be saved. No amount of photoshopping your life is going to save you. And no amount of likes and retweets and shares is ever going to give you the kind of satisfaction that God promises is yours in Christ. Come to Jesus and be satisfied. That's a good offer. Salvation's cause, what is it? If God is motivated by his love and goodness to save us, not because we are good and so lovely, but because he is overwhelmingly good and loving, well, what is the cause? Verse 5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. It's the mercy of God that saves us. Some people believe if I do good, then God will accept me. Nope. God accepts you, even though you have no merit to be accepted. And in accepting you, he makes you good. Oh, that's good. That's real good. And that's according to his mercy. When we should have received judgment, instead we receive forgiveness. 
Paul writes in Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. God did that for you and to you. God is the cause, not you of your own salvation. The only thing you contribute is sin. God does everything else. The work of the Holy Spirit in salvation, we see this, that it's by, you see he uses the word by, which tells us the agency in which this happens. It's by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus accomplishes the redemption and accomplishes the salvation but the application of that salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit regenerates us, renews us. What does it mean to be regenerate? The NIV translates it rebirth. We say it popularly to be born again. You heard that phrase? To be born again. Remember when Jesus had an interaction with a dude named Nicodemus? Nicodemus came to Jesus and says, you must be from God because you do amazing stuff. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, regenerate, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So naturally, our more charismatic folks will say, well, that Nicodemus was regenerate because he saw the works of God, the miracles. And yet in verse 12 of John chapter 3, Jesus says, I'm telling you earthly things and you still do not believe. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? In other words, we know that Nicodemus is not regenerate. Nicodemus is not saved. So Jesus tells Nicodemus in verse 4, truly, truly, or excuse me, verse 5, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And that is alluding to Ezekiel chapter 36, where God promises through the prophet Ezekiel that one day in the new covenant, you will be washed with water and the Holy Spirit will be placed inside of you. And so that's what that refers to, not baptism, but the, the pouring out of the spirit and the cleansing of water from Ezekiel 36. And, and then Jesus says, don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. In other words, the spirit of God is going to do whatever the spirit of God wants to do. He's going to bring people to faith. And he's going to give life to whomever he wants. He blows wherever he wants, which is unsettling to us because we want to be in control. And then we're told from Jesus, you don't have control. The spirit has control. Uh oh. And then we read in John 6, 63, it is the spirit, Jesus says, who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words, Jesus says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And then in Ephesians 2.5 where, where Paul says that God made you alive together with Christ. And so you have this beautiful picture of the spirit gives life and Jesus is life. How does that work? 
John Piper says in his book, Finally Alive, in the new birth, in regeneration, the Holy Spirit supernaturally gives us new spiritual life by connecting us with Jesus Christ through faith because Jesus is life. So when you hear what is being said and you begin to believe what is being said, the Holy Spirit is doing that. And then he awakens you from death to life. And when you are given life, what you are given is connection to Jesus, which means if you are not connected to Jesus, you have no life. Now, this is shocking what 1 Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. He says to Christians, since you have been born again, since you've been regenerated, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. And look at this, through the living and abiding word of God. In other words, Peter says, you've been born again through the word of God. Jesus said, my words are life and truth, spirit and life. Verse 25, well, what is the word of God? Peter writes, and this word is the gospel, the good news that was preached to you. Do you see how this all fits together? <laughs> when we speak, not our words, but when we speak the gospel, the spirit rides upon those words. And when they come to a hearer, he unstops their ears. He causes them to see and their hearts are made new and therefore they believe and they see and they hear and they are given life connection to Jesus through the preaching of the gospel that's why Paul writes in verse 8 I want you to insist on these things what are the, these things everything he just said why should churches insist on the preaching of the gospel? Because there's no other way for people to get saved and to have true life. So when you see of churches, here's four ways to be a better husband. Here's six ways to be a better employee. Here's 19 ways to better your life in this way, that way, and the other. And it's divorced from the gospel. No power. No power. Can't save anybody. But we interpret that as power because we have confused entertainment with the Holy Spirit. And entertainment doesn't save anybody. No matter how loud the music is or how beautiful the lights are or how relevant the message, the power is in the words of Christ, resurrected from the dead. That's why we insist on these things, brothers and sisters, because we don't save ourselves. Salvation is according to God's mercy motivated by his love and goodness. Now, this is unsettling because we want control. Where's my clock? All right. We want control. But here's what John says in John chapter 1, verse 12. But who all, all to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And they were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, in other words, the spirit blows wherever he wants. He gives life to whomever he wants. It's not according to your will or wants. You're born again of God. 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. One reason why we can be so courteous and gentle and respectful and patient with people is because we were once in their shoes, but we have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And because we have heard the gospel faithfully preached and believed it, we are filled with the Holy Spirit who empowers and enables us to obey. But one of the important things is this. When God regenerates you and renews you, He breathes life into you, and the life you now live is evidenced by your good works. Your good works are not what generates new life. It's the evidence of new life. That's why they need to go together. You can't divorce the two. You see, the way in which we live reflects what we live for. The way in which you live reflects what you live for. If you say church is a priority and you come 10 weeks out of 52 because you got 42 other things you got to do, it's not a priority for you. That seems obvious. I don't, I don't know. But you see what I'm saying? How you live reveals what you live for. And that's why John writes what he does in 1 John chapter 1. We read it last week. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And then in verse 3, he says, everyone who hopes like this, who thus hopes for Jesus' coming, he purifies himself as he is pure. You see, the hope of where we're headed informs how we live today. Your destination informs your preparation. If you know you're headed for heaven, you better prepare as though heaven is already here, because it is. You see how that works. But you know that the whole concept of being born again has gone through the sewers in our culture. I don't know if you've seen this, but Newsweek and and USA Today and a bunch of news sources have commented that when you really look at born-again Christians, their lives are really not that distinct from those who are not born again. In fact, Barner Research Group had this whole uh, study that they did, and here's some of their findings that born-again Christians give about the same amount of money as those who are not born again. They engage in the, roughly the same amount of premarital and extramarital sex. They, the divorce rate is roughly the same. They're just as likely to embrace injustice. They're just as likely to be greedy. And they're just as likely as, as those who are not born again to sin as much as anybody. Which would lead you to believe being regenerate doesn't do anything for you. John Piper in his book, Finally Alive, he writes this. In this research, the term born again refers to people who say things. They say, I have a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. It's important to me. They say, I believe that I will go to heaven when I die. I have confessed my sins and accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. And then the Barna group takes them at their word, ascribes to them the infinitely important reality of the new birth, and then slanders that precious biblical truth by saying that regenerate hearts have no more victory over sin than unregenerate hearts. He goes on to say, I'm not saying their research is wrong. It appears to be appallingly right. I'm not saying that the church is not as worldly as they say it is. But what I am saying is that the writers of the New Testament think in exactly the opposite direction about what it means to be born again. Instead of moving from a profession of faith to the label, oh, these people must be born again, to the fact that worldliness is a part of these so-called born-again people, 
to the inevitable conclusion that the new birth doesn't really radically change anyone. The New Testament moves in the opposite direction. It moves from the absolute certainty that the new birth radically changes people to the observation that many professing Christians who are born again are indeed not radically changed. Therefore, the New Testament concludes they are not really born again. Oh, oh. You see, one of the hard things about being a pastor is not trying to convince sinful people that they're sinners. That's easy. The hardest thing of pastoral ministry is actually coming alongside of a professing born-again Christian and trying to convince them by the way in which they live that they're not actually born again. You can do a million cultural Christian things and none of those things will give you new life. Sign up for every Bible study. You're still not getting saved. Instead, we need the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon us. And the only way for the Holy Spirit to be poured out in abundance is for the preaching of the gospel to take hold in every church and in the preaching of the gospel that the Holy Spirit anoints it and brings dead hearts to life and ears will no longer be deaf, but they will hear and eyes will no longer be blind, but they will see and hearts will no longer be resistant, but they will be open to the glory of God and when you hear that, you go, yes. Amen. Somebody came up to me at the last service and I feel you're making me uneasy about my salvation. Do you have reason to be? And here's the thing. What you do is evidence of what you believe. And if you believe the gospel, it will be evident in how you live. But just because you're living disobediently, it doesn't mean that somehow Jesus' blood is now insufficient. Because now we've just confused the idea of thinking, well, since I'm, I'm, I'm disobeying God, it must mean that I, I'm not saved. Well, then the opposite is true if you think like that, which is if I obey God, then, then he saves me. No, 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 no. That's what, no, no, no. Do you see how that works? Your assurance of salvation has nothing to do with you because your salvation itself has nothing to do with you. You don't cause it. You don't bring it about. And therefore, you don't preserve it. God preserves it because God initiated it, because God established it, because God caused it. So if there's any power greater than God, then you can lose what God has given you. But since there's no power greater than God, you ain't losing it. All right, last thing. Oh, oh, nope, not the last thing. <laughs> First John chapter 3, I just want to read these verses. Verse 11. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that you are to love one another. We know that we have, look at this, we know that we have passed out of death into life. How? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know 
love that Jesus laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The command has been from the beginning, love me and love your neighbor. And throughout the Bible and human history, we've come to realize, I know that's what I, I need to do. I can't do it. I can't love you like I should. I can't love my neighbors like I should. So Jesus comes on the scene full of grace and truth and goodness and loving kindness and says, I'm going to grant you through the Holy Spirit the power and the enabling in order for you to do the things that I've commanded you to do. Love me and love your neighbor. And because of the regeneration and rebirth, you now have the power to do it. That's good. So God, help us, I pray. I pray that whoever has been here listening, whether they have professed faith in you or not, God, that you would open their eyes and let them see the beauty of the gospel. God, unstop their ears and let them hear what's being said, the, the fact that you so loved the world that you gave your son Jesus so that whoever believes in Jesus and all that he has accomplished on their behalf, that they will be saved. So God, grant life, I pray. Grant it to them now, I pray. Grant it to them and help them to respond with faith that they have heard the gospel and now they believe. And God, may it never be that any of us think that our sin is more powerful than your mercy. For your mercy is great. And so God, save your people, I pray. For your glory, for our joy, in Jesus' name, amen.